Hi, I'm Scott. And I'm Seth. And I'm Kyle, motorsports presenter at Grid Life. That's some, dang, title and everything. That's a, that's a good introduction. That's, that's solid. Actually, you know what? We should we should go back and have Kyle just introduce the show. I mean, what's <laughs> what's your handle? Mr. Talky Face or something? Talky McTalk Face? That's what Scott Giles calls me. Talky yeah. Face Man. Yeah, Talk Face. So... Hi, Kyle. Hi. Hi, Scott. Hi, hi, Seth. Hi. Thanks for literally carving out a little bit of time for us. We're uh, we're in between your day job and your night job. Yes, really is what's happening here. So I hope you're able to, I don't know, get a granola bar or something. (laughs) I'll eat later. I I usually eat late anyway, so it's no big deal. (laughs) Well, Kyle, I want to go back to when I first started about you, because I like to make things about myself, I guess, and um, was when you were doing SimTV, which you still do, but you were a eSports announcer, and I thought that was a weird job, because I didn't know that I knew like esports was a thing, like sim racing and I don't know, whatever else can be competed at online, which are a multitude. But I didn't know like announcing was like a thing. How did you even discover that you could do that? If you asked me five years ago, I would have said that that's not a job and you can't do that. Um, but it, it all started in college. I was in Binghamton University for computer engineering, and this was my sophomore year, and I was roommates with Finian DeCuna, who was from Long Island and also happened to be an iRacer. Uh, and I had done iRacing with my friend Joel, who kind of got me interested in motorsports when I was a kid. And we both, Finian and I both kind of dropped iRacing when we joined college, focusing on school. And when we kind of met each other and we had this mutual connection through iRacing, we decided to kind of re-up our accounts in school and kind of give it a go. And one day he pulls me aside and shows me a Reddit post from someone that was looking for a group to broadcast and announce their iRacing league race. And I thought that was the dumbest idea ever. I was like, well, you, why? We don't, I'm not an announcer. I don't right. know how to do any of this. I don't even know how to, you know, get a TV angle in the, in the simulator. So and, had, uh, had, had anybody ever told you that like you have a radio voice? Never, never, never. I never even once considered it. Not once. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, like this is totally, I was in school for engineering. I like wrote a bunch in college, was a pretty good English student. Um, but I had never once considered announcing, talking about anything. Um, I actually hated my voice. I think the only thing I could trace back is when I was really, really young. I was probably, I don't know, eight, nine years old. Um, I remember using our camcorder, like the family handheld camcorder and shooting like one frame at a time of like Hot Wheels cars and like doing like little stop motion productions. And I think I was probably announcing in my little kid voice what was going on there. But that's the only like core memory I can unlock that had anything to do with this. That's 
And I mean, engineering's not really a talking gig. That's more of a sit in the back on a computer, maybe with some machines sort of thing. Was so public speaking, no public speaking? Like, did you have a fear of public speaking or just a, lo- a lot of people in the engineering field, at least at younger, like before you get to college, a lot of engineers don't like public speaking. I was never really one of those people. I didn't like it necessarily, but I, I wasn't afraid of it. I would kind of just True. do it and it didn't bother me. Okay. So you're that makes him an exceptional engineer right there. <laughs> hey, well, the thing is, is I didn't end up being a very engineers. good engineer. So I'm glad this worked out. <laughs> no, you're like that guy in office space who goes between the engineers and the other people yeah. because like yeah. you can exist in both worlds. I talk to the engineers so the, <laughs> they don't have to talk to the customers. I'm a people person, <laughs> damn it. Um, all right. So your roommate pitches you this idea he saw off Reddit. And then yeah. you do it. Uh, and I just, I started Googling. I was like, how do you do this? <laughs> and I, I watched a couple YouTube tutorials and yeah. I cobbled together uh, some timing software that I found, downloaded it and like learned how to use OBS, which is uh, like a broadcasting software and learned how to chroma key out the the background on the web page so that I could overlay the timing on the screen. And um, we, we gave it a shot and... Scott, it was it was not good. It was really, really bad. Well, you you lost me at chroma and background. <laughs> and that's all thing, I knew how so. to do. I just I, I knew these these buzzwords and terms and I was like, well, maybe if I just key out the background and I didn't know what any of this meant, right? I, I was just, you know, kind of fumbling along. And it was like fifteen bucks or something was, you know, it was the pitch. Like, can you do this for fifteen bucks? I'm like, ah, sure. So we we, we did our first stream and that's grilled, uh, che- that's grilled cheese money right there. Yeah, I mean that. I mean, split across two people, mind you. That was fifteen bucks total. Oh, <laughs> so that was it. Wasn't like we were making hay early. Um, so yeah, so we did this first race, and uh, it was it was bad. And I, I think after that, we both thought it was bad, but I don't think we realized how bad it. Well, like looking back now, it's absolutely atrocious. But everyone else in the race that watched it back later thought we were great. And well, that was like, going to be my other question. Did just you think it was bad or did everybody think it was bad? Because if we, everybody else thought it was good, then you're just critical of yourself. <laughs> well, I, I think the the bar must have been pretty low. I think I, I don't think for 15 bucks they were expecting yeah, a what's, lot. <laughs> and, and what's your competition at that point? There is a, a huge, a huge community of esport broadcasters, specifically in iRacing. But I think at the time, I mean, this is this isn't that long ago. It's 2018. Um, you know, at the time, there was a handful of of groups that were really high end that would be hundreds of dollars for a broadcast. And then there was a ton of like people like us that were just kind of fumbling along learning. And there wasn't a lot of people in the middle ground. Mm. So I realized that if we just kind of kept doing this to the point where we could get okay, we could kind of step up, offer a little bit more, and kind of be that middle middle ground between. You know, the guys that are just figuring it out and the guys that are really good at it. Mediocre is not a bad place to be. Yeah, shoot for mediocrity. And if uh, if it's awesome, it's great. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so the, the two of you, and this was just like a thing you did on the side, like outside of obviously outside of classroom and stuff like that. Like, did you start to do it pretty regularly from that point on? 
So we started, actually, this is a great day to have this conversation because our first broadcast was on February 20th, 2018, which is exactly five years ago. So this is a a, a big day for us. Um, But yeah, so we started out doing just the one group. It was once a week. I think it was Wednesday nights, Wednesday or Thursday nights. With with that same league? With the same league. They're running Ferrari GT3 cars. And um, through them, there was a couple people that ran in a different league that ran stock cars. And through word of mouth, they, they were like, oh, well, if you came over here and, and did it for us, too, we're on Monday nights. So why don't you guys do us? So we, we went from one week or one day a week to two days a week um, to then getting exposed to a different group that did road racing on, on a different day. So I think by middle of summer 2018, we're probably doing three times a week. It's probably about what we were doing. That's a pretty so, decent practice. Because yeah. I'm old and only know most of the stuff through my kids doing streaming things. What's the point in hiring an announcer? I think I know the answer, but I want to hear you tell me, like, if I'm a group and I do iRacing and I want to hire an announcer, like, why do I want to do that? I think the simplest way to explain it is is, is these people in these leagues are, are essentially, they're role-playing, right? Everyone wants to be a race car driver. You get the simulator to pretend you're a race car driver or to, or to be a virtual one. And for them, they see value in uh, in, in the experience of watching back their race as if it was on TV as part of that kind of role play scenario um, and, and to, to watch it like it's on ESPN or Fox Sports or NBC, there's value in that to them uh, as an experience. And it isn't wasn't so much about the live viewers as it was providing an, an exciting rewind, basically, the event that they just participated yeah. in. Are some of these guys monetizing this, the streams real time and then post watching them? Yeah. Um, yeah, so generally, like the way that we do it, so the viewership wise, there's so much of this out there that you can okay. never sustain yourself on just views and ads. And okay. if you're big, you can do that. But for the most part, it's the league wants this to get done. The league pays you directly, and then you stream, and then you you might throw ads on it and make you know five cents every three months or whatever. <laughs> you know, it's not very much. Okay, so it, most of it is you add value to the drivers and to the league itself. Yes. Yep. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah, so your paycheck, meager as it was to start with anyway, was funded by the drivers themselves. Yeah, the drivers or the the league organizer would sometimes just fund out of pocket. A lot of the leagues were free. Some of them were not. Kind of depends on gotcha. the structure of the league. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of get that because, I mean, one of the reasons, one of the things we really enjoyed about the One Lap of America a few years ago was, you know, seeing the pictures afterwards and like having this memory book because you're kind of busy doing a thing. Like, you know, if you're racing, like you're busy racing and you know, that's something Becky and I enjoy getting home after a a GLTC weekend is we sit down on Monday night and we (laughs) start watching the live stream. Um, it's, 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 you know, probably the same thing as why people take selfies like i want to i want to see things that i missed maybe i'll get a glimpse of myself that's me speaking as a perennial mid-packer um yeah it's just it's kind of cool yeah and i guess the other thing to think about is all these races that these people put so much time into uh, two years later if they wanted to go back and, and look at something again they wouldn't otherwise have anything to they'd be like remember that race that you ran me into the wall in turn four and, and be like no you know but you can 
you know, go back and copy the link and paste it back and relive that whole day over again, which I think is, is pretty, pretty cool. So as you guys were kind of picking up different nights, I assume honing your graphics and how do you get better at announcing other than just like raw practice? But I have a feeling that raw practice wouldn't necessarily make you better but it might make you more proficient. So how have you found you improve the best uh, when calling races? I I think so much of it is energy related. And I remember vividly going back to 2018 and doing our first race. I thought in the moment, I thought we were crushing it because I was saying all the right things and all the terms that you'd hear on Fox sports and, you know, three wide and all the, you, you in the moment you think you're awesome, but you go back and the energy doesn't match. And there's, there's an art there was an artificialness to it that it didn't feel genuine. And one of the things that I learned over time was that you have to put yourself in the moment and stop trying to, to commentate and just have a conversation and get excited about it because the the biggest thing that will make you stick out that that you're you know you're not in it is if your energy level doesn't match what's on track if you're artificially pumping this up to be something that it's not it's going to feel off if something's awesome's happening and you're kind of you know you don't care about it you're not invested in it then it's going to feel off so you have to match the energy level to it and which is something I just would I'd go back and watch and I'd man that doesn't doesn't feel right why doesn't that feel like something? I'm saying all the right things, but I'm not saying them the right way. And that was the thing that I kind of learned over time was to match the energy better and to get invested in it. Because if you treat it like a video game, it, it's going to come across as not serious, not professional. Um, and if you treat it too professionally and forget to have a laugh every now and then, it's going to feel too stale. So there's a balance on all and all sides with energy and professionalism that you have to keep in mind. Every, every time you go into one of these shows, so even if you do it eight times a week, you have to pretend like it's the one thing that you do every month and just go in there and crush it. And how did, how did you come to that realization about the energy? I, I don't know that I like ever did like in the, in the moment, I think now looking back, it's easy to, to see that progression, yeah. but there was a turning point, I think, um, for us because 2018, um, and, and we can kind of go back and, and kind of divulge into how I got into grid life through this, but really the pandemic in 2020 is really what I think hit the turning point for me mm-hmm. was because school kind of fell apart, right? Every Everything, this, I was a senior when the pandemic hit. Yep. So this is the last couple months of my college career and everything stopped and the schools didn't know how to handle it. They didn't know what to do. So they just stopped for two weeks, three weeks, nothing happened. They were planning their uh, at-home classes and all this. So Finney and I just dove in hard into graphics and announcing, and we picked up league after league after league. We'd do two or three of them in a night, stacked back to back to back. And just the the repetition of it, doing it so many times for so many different kinds of racing and for so many different groups of people that I think we just kind of brute forced our way into being competent. <laughs> I don't know. If, and then we're looking back, like that brute force and doing dozens of streams you know every month uh, we i think if, if you average all the streams that we've done since day 1 we've done over a thousand which averages to about like 1.8 every 2 days or something like that so it, it's like the frequency that we were doing them was insane so i think the, the we just brute forced our way into figuring it out and i <laughs> wish there was an easier way to to, to say that but that's just you know the nascar guys get once a week we got three times a day for 
four months. Jeez. You know? What was there a point because it this really came out of nowhere and I'm kind of hearing that you like to be good at things. Um, we'll come back to that, but like you, you kind of throw yourself into doing a good job into trying to improve and you start in your sophomore year really, really gets running your senior year. Was there a point not to say that it's like, Hey, I could make like an actual living doing this, but where you're like, this feels more than a hot, like it feels more than something I like to do. Now this feels more than a hobby to me. Like, was, were there moments or like what 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 was that path like? I'd say, um, you know, there was a couple moments that almost had me there. And I'd, I'd say the the grid life thing, getting asked to go commentate at Grid Life Midwest in 2019 was was one of those things. But even even the grid life thing, I th- did grid life twice in 2019, and the Road Atlanta trip was the first time I'd ever flown on an airplane. I'd never flown before you in my life. I like grew adorable. up in <laughs> grew up in Rochester, wow. New York, and I'd I'd been around the Northeast, but had never had a reason. We don't have family anywhere else, so there's no real point in flying anywhere. So Road Atlanta was my first flight, but you know it, it didn't happen with God, frequency and, enough. And you flew in flew into Atlanta. Yes, God, that's crazy. a miserable that's the craziest airport. thing in my life. I mean, and, and Finian had flown all he, his he has family in India, so he's flown all over the place. So it wasn't a big deal to him, but for me, it was crazy. Jeez. Um, but grid life was you know twice a year. It was it was kind of cool. It, you know, I, we were just kind of showing up and doing it. It was didn't feel real yet. But in between um, working at grid life full time and that road Atlanta opportunity. In the, I think it was July of 20, maybe it was June of 2020, in the pandemic, mm-hmm. I get a call from Robbie Montanola, who's the uh, one of the marketing executives at uh, Fanatec GT World Challenge America. And uh, he gives me a call, and I, he had gotten my number from Tom O'Gorman. And he said, hey, we're running this esports championship um, that that we, we want you to participate in. We want you to, to broadcast it for us. Um, and so it was really cool. We, we quoted him some insane number because we were like, oh, this is a big series. We could charge him a lot of money. And then he shot us down real fast. <laughs> but we ended up doing uh, a really good job on that, on their official pandemic esports series. And he gives me another call later and says, hey, do you want to come out to Sonoma uh, and, and announce for do like a simulcast for one of our sponsors, which is CrowdStrike? And I thought being asked to fly across the country to work for a global sponsor. CrowdStrike is this crazy huge company um, that is like del- deals with internet security and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I was working for a major North American racing company indirectly for one of their biggest sponsors in California. That was like the moment where I was like, okay, what's what's happening now? And that was probably the turning point for me where it all started to feel real. That was August of 2020. Had you always been a racing fan i know you said that you oh. were into sim racing but like in terms of like watching nascar indy like whatever it was had had you like been raised on that no so interestingly my family never really was like they weren't really into racing the only person in my family that was was my grandfather and he would watch the indy 500 every year and we would kind of talk about it and he'd yep. buy me you know toy cars and things of the sort 
but really my introduction to racing was my friend Joel who lived down the street and we were you know would hang out all the time almost every day I basically lived at his house during the summers and uh, every year they'd go on vacation to Watkins Glen and go watch the NASCAR race okay. and so in 2007 I was nine uh, in 2007 uh, he asked if I'd want to go to NASCAR and I was like, hell yeah, I want to go to NASCAR. So <laughs> we, I went to NASCAR, and uh, and the the moment that car, our car rolled into the gate under the tunnel into the track, that was like, this is this is it, this is the thing. Mm. And uh, it was a transformative experience to watch something like that for the first time. So a lot has been said about the differences, similarities, and transition between sim driving and driving a car on a track. That first time that you got to announce in real life at Grid Life, was that weird? Like, did you know what to do with your hands at the time? Like, what... (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what I didn't know how to do is I didn't know how to dress for a grid life event. <laughs> so the only experience I had had working um, at any event. Um, Did you wear was, like khakis and a I, I literally showed up in khakis yes. and a polo. Like I, I had no idea. I didn't know. And and no one told me there because, nope. you know, it was just kind of this informal, why don't you show up and try this? So I learned quickly that that's not what you do at grid life. Um, but as far as the, the broadcast went, it was shockingly didn't feel... It, it it felt totally normal. Hmm. The only thing that was a little funky was being on camera. I wasn't used to that yet. Okay. And I'm still not really used to that, to be honest. I'm not great on camera, and I'd like to, it's something I'd still like to work on. It's not something I've been forced to have to do. Um, at least like standing and you know walking around. Like I can I can sit behind a desk, but that's not that hard. Um, but from the commentary perspective, it was really really normal, and it felt pretty easy. In all honesty, the only thing that was different was the tools I had. Because in a, a sim, I have a timing screen where I can click on any car and see it instantly. And now I'm, I have a field of 35 cars, most of the drivers I'd never met before, mm-hmm. that were three pixels across on, on a drone shot, and you had to pick them out. So that was, the, that was the biggest challenge, but I felt right at home. And that was one of those other moments where I was like, you know what, maybe this, maybe this is a real thing. You know, Maybe this isn't just some hobby I do. Maybe this could be a thing that I do. You just mentioned that you know that there are 35 drivers um uh the quaint days when we only had 35 <laughs> cars in a field um that you didn't know the cars you didn't know the drivers and what i found i don't i don't necessarily idolize or like have announcers that like i can pull their names out of my hat and you know say this guy's good or this woman's really doing it right but i know the power of storytelling and knowing background information so what do you do when you walk into a league a sim racing league or a race weekend when you know maybe a handful of people at best and you're tasked with commentating and calling a race like how do you I mean, you can't like make up background stories and stuff, but how do you, how do you fill that void? Like when you don't know, oh, this person, you know, is coming back from that incident or, you know, they just slaved all night to try to do this stupid swap or something. It's one of those things that it, it, 
depends on what you're doing. I think it's very different in the sim world than it is in the real world. Um, in the sim world, I, I can fall back on stats forever because most of the leagues use the same uh, points infrastructure. So oh, I can go okay. back and look at every league race someone's ever done and I can basically get their history on a web page. It's not something that's very easy to do with grassroots racing. Um, and you mentioned the power of storytelling. I don't have a single notebook with anything on anybody in grid life uh, or SRO for that matter. Um because I found it, so I work in SRO, which is GT World Challenge, with Ryan Marine, who is their current play-by-play announcer. Mm-hmm. He sent me his notes that he has for every driver and every crew member that is in the paddock at SRO. It is a 650-page PDF document. That's amazing. And that's, and that's how Ryan Marine works. I can't do that. I don't work that way. I retain information a whole lot better if I just go talk to him. And I... I have never i probably scribbled on an entry list but that's the extent of my note taking um i find it way more impactful to find somebody in the paddock and talk to them or if i can't do that the best thing i always tell drivers that are new they go how can i help you know more about me i just send me everything that you think is important to me in a message and i will read that message because it gets really hard to seek out 550 people but once i lock eyes on your face and i meet you in person then it it sets a new memory in and it begins a whole lot easier to retain information. So send me that information. And then when I meet you, I can connect those dots in my brain. But if I don't get either of those two things, it gets really hard, really fast. Uh, So the data is fine, but it doesn't help me without the face. And the face is great. I can work without notes if I have your face, but the face is the kind of the common denominator is I need to see you in person to really lock that memory in. And it doesn't happen for everybody because it's a huge paddock and I, I try but uh, the weekends get, get crazy and you can only see so many people. And uh, the SRO challenge, the problem with them is that, you know, these are CEOs of companies that are driving these cars and they'll fly in on yeah. a helicopter an hour before the race yeah. and then they're gone. So yep. <laughs> good luck trying to track them down. Um, I have a whole other story on that. If we get around to it about my first time announcing for TV at Nashville, which is yeah. go for it. We're here. And trying to track drivers yeah, down. Yeah, let's, I want to hear it. Yep. Yeah, so yeah, I guess it's related to this. So trying to track drivers down, um, you know, this is, I got called in to replace Calvin Fish in 2021 at Nashville because Calvin had a, a clash with Road America. And the only other announcer that SRO had um, at the time was, was me, who was doing projects that were not related to the broadcast or the public address. I was just working for CrowdStrike doing a little simulcast of the mainstream. I'd basically remove the main announcer audio and then re-announce it with uh, commentary that is specific to the, their CrowdStrike drivers. Gotcha. So I get a call from from Robbie, who was my boss there, and he goes, are you available these dates at Nashville? I, I need you in this pinch. And I go, well, that's a problem because I have a grid life event at, at Mid-Ohio, but let me call Chris and we'll see what I can figure out. And I called Chris and Chris is like, just just go do that. Just find a replacement and go do it because you're. This is a TV opportunity. This is you're going to be on CBS Sports. This is a IndyCar companion event. There's 120,000 people. Just go do it. And so I uh, reached out to Greg Creamer, who used to do the announcing for SRO, and he replaced me. And I got to go to SRO and announce GT America. Um, totally new field of drivers I'd never met before, and it was really really hard to track them down. The paddock was all spread out uh, because it's a, it was the first year of the event, so all the you know everyone's kind of scattered and 
the event was still actively being built as we were there. It was just really, really hard to find anybody. Yeah. And then we get to the broadcast and it was run by IndyCar Productions and they had a whole bunch of technical failures and problems um, that led to Ryan's Ryan Marine, who was my co-announcer, his audio never went on air for a portion of the broadcast. And so he was panicking and motioning to me that I had to take over. Yep. It was my first time on TV. And here I am like trying to hold this. <laughs> it was in my, my end result of that was like, I, I, I left disappointed on that weekend, which stunk, but it just, I, I didn't really prepare adequately because I'd never had the experience of not being able to find people to talk to that never happened before. And on top of that, the production problems and not being prepared for when things went wrong, uh, it just kind of cascaded. And, uh, you know, the SRO was fine with my role and it, I ended up doing some more stuff for them later. But um, it was uh, one of those experiences I wish I could kind of redo, I think. Nobody needs to learn that much all at one time. <laughs> it was a lot. Because, it was so much. It was a learning experience, but maybe like in smaller pieces next time. Yes. Yeah. One one thing at a time, please. And, and not <laughs> while I'm being recorded for everybody to watch. Yeah, and, and that was the great thing was um, what I learned later was that nobody's audio went out on the broadcast. So my my fumbling around trying to find words never made it to air. And so no one on YouTube even knew that I was screwing up really bad. It was great. That's... So you go back and look at the comments on those live streams and everyone's just mad at the production. They don't they didn't say a word about me, which is great because it was my first time and nobody complained. <laughs> so there's a there's a metaphor in that somewhere. <laughs> so I I keep hearing it. So I'm going to talk about it. You like to do things well, Kyle. You like to be more than competent. You like to be like to be good at things. Why do you like to be good at things? Has this been like a life like since you like to al- alphabetize the letters when you were a, a baby really well or? I'm not I'm not really sure that I could pinpoint that. If you ask Chris, I'm about 70% effective at 100% of things. So, I'm there's a couple things I'm pretty good at, but most things I can I can do um and I can do them with competency, but I'm not like the best person in any one area. Okay. And I think that that's what, you know, Chris always uses me for these kind of weird side roles at Grid Life often because he doesn't have a person but the best person to slot in is the person that has 50% efficacy if there's no one that has any. And, um, but and you're there. You're I'm, there and present. I'm there. I'm there and present and willing. But, you know, looking back, I, I think yeah, one of the things that I was always particular about in school was grammar. Um, okay. And I don't, I don't know where this ladders back to, but I don't know why. But I had some really good English teachers, and they really made me want to ex- succeed at um, at writing, writing, I would, I didn't really read much, but I was a pretty good writer. Mm. And I think I always kind of realized that I, I, I was probably above average when it came to any kind of written piece, any book reports, things like that. Um, and always did pretty well. And I think that kind of carried over into college where everyone else was really good at the engineering side yeah. when it came to like the reports and things, I was pretty good at that. And so I ended up kind of latching onto that. And I think that that might make sense, you know, that uh, the announcing thing kind of ladders back to the English proficiency. But I don't I don't really know that I'm not a competitive person necessarily. Like I get a little bit, you know, frazzed when things I'm losing at something or something's not going my way. But okay. I don't think it drives me in the same way that like 
you know, there's there's race car drivers that like all they want to do is win all the time. And that's the only thing that gets them up in the morning. I'm not like that. I'm not super competitive, but I just want to not stink at anything. So I just kind of do it all and hope that I can gain some proficiency. And, and I think in, in the things that I have a touch on, I, I think I do those okay enough. Uh, and I'm always trying to get better at it, not for any particular reason, but just because I, I don't see a reason not to. How, and if you can give me an example without like really opening up your chest and laying your soul bare, like has there been a time, and we can talk about um, announcing or life, I don't know, but um, a time that you have failed at something and like, did you just handle it, figure out how to make it better and move on? Did you kind of let it crush you for a little while? Yeah. So there's a couple, there's, there's, I'll use the, there's one from the broadcast land and there's one from life land. And I think uh, <laughs> those are we'll different with, lands. Th- those are different lands. And, you know, one of these things is out of my control. So I, it, it was just one of those, like, how do you handle it scenarios? Sure. And I had, uh, so the game is set, of course, a competizione. It's one of the most popular sim racing titles out there. Um, through SRO, that, that's their official game. They were launching the American Tracks DLC. So they were announcing, this is recent, this is this year. They were launching Coda, Indy, and Watkins Glen for this game. And to preview this content before it was public, they asked me to to broadcast this special race with all these influencers and all this stuff. And I was so prepared. I spent extra time like replicating SRO's graphics and using After Effects and getting it all snazzy. Yep. And then I hit stream. And I for two hours, we tested. We made sure everything was working. And then go time comes and my internet dies. Oh, my God. Yeah. And, and it just completely crashed. And the stream stopped and everyone freaked out I'm getting texts and emails from the AWS guy that was pushing the stream out everywhere. And, uh, and my boss at SRO and which I wasn't, uh, you know, this is, this wasn't like I was on the hook for anything necessarily. Like I wasn't being paid. This was something that they just asked me to do. Sure. And I was happy to be a part of it, but it was one of those moments where it was like soul crushingly horrifying to be in that position and not like, what am I supposed to do? Like I can't fix the internet. It, it was, uh, I had a, a whole bunch of issues with my ISP. Um, and it was just one of those days that it just decided to, to crap out on me. Um, and so in, in the moment it was, it was a pretty big panic, but I always record all of my broadcasts just in case this happens. So then all I have to do is, is provide the replay file mm-hmm. and they can just upload it later. So the, the solution essentially was like, all right. This isn't going to make it live. There's issues on the on the internet side, and they just uploaded the video later, and it was totally fine. So you, could, we, we, so you could still announce the race still happened, oh yeah. but nobody yep. saw it as it was happening. Yeah, it was it was one of those my internet before, and I'm now recently I just got a fiber upgrade, so I'm I'm perfect now. But um, the I had issues with upload. So download, I, I could get all the information from the server on where the cars were and everything, but I just couldn't get anything out. So I could still watch the race, still announce the race. Everything went totally fine. And it was just all about managing the panic and making sure it didn't come out on the broadcast because you could very easily crumble. I was crumbling internally, but it's very easy to make to externalize that and completely ruin it or just stop and realize and kind of give up and say, all right, I've lost it. Cancel it because that would have been a lot worse situation. Well, and I'm finding the way that you're talking about this situation to be very similar to 
on track in the heat of the moment things. When something goes wrong, something happens, and you kind of just, you've got a few choices on how you're going to handle it. And the way I'm hearing is like surprisingly composed, maybe not internally you're, right. you're freaking out, but you're kind of, sounds like you're kind of triaging it and figuring out just mechanically like what needs to happen. Right. And I think in the in the sim world, I actually think this prepped me pretty well for the real world because we've had a couple streams on the grid life side that have gone poorly for a very similar reason. But on the sim racing side, I'm also producing the entire show. So I'm selecting camera angles and, and putting broadcast or graphics up mm -hmm. and announcing all at the same time, which isn't common uh, for these broadcast groups. Typically, there's a producer and then there's your announcers that are separate. Right. So the challenge is how do you technically troubleshoot and also keep your brain in the game when you're commentating what's on track? So that was a skill I got pretty good at <laughs> is, is managing disasters and then when the grid life stuff happened, I think it was Midwest a couple of years ago, like the tri-county area lost power and we were running the stream yep. off of generators. Yep. And it was just disaster mode. All right, here's the tools we have to work with. Let's just rip it and we'll deal with it later. And and I think in all of those scenarios, the result ended up being not much different than the real stream without problems would have been. Mm. Interesting. And then there there's the other story, which is a, a real life failure story. And I, I mentioned before, I'm not very good at engineering, or I wasn't. I thought I would all high school. I was. I did all the entire. We, our state had a, a program called the Project Lead the Way program, which introduced you to different kinds of engineering all through high school. Okay. And I was. I excelled at those. I really enjoyed them. Um, I did work outside of class. I messed with microcontrollers and did a little bit of programming and built little analog circuits that did all these cool little things. And I built button boxes for my friend's simulator where you could like flip toggle switches and things and it would plug into the computer and all this stuff. And so I was like, engineering is what I want to do. So I applied to college and got into my top pick school, which was Binghamton University in electrical engineering. Um, and then within uh, the first year went okay. And, and I, you know, I did reasonably all right. The second year comes around and then it like all kind of fell apart. And I think I kind of coasted a lot through high school and didn't really ever learn how to study. And when sophomore year came around, and this is right at the time Sim TV, this is right be probably before Sim TV started, is when I, I just my grades just took a nosedive, and I, I couldn't really figure out what was happening um, because it had been so easy before. And I just kind of it just you know you go home, you do the homework, you show up, you you get an A, and then I I learned my sophomore year that that was not going to be the case anymore. And my, I think my biggest failure was I never really bounced back from that. And I never really learned how to fix it. Um, and I had all these opportunities to do it. And I, I think the result was I never extracted what I wanted out of school. Um, mm. And I, I think I left there disappointed in that entire experience. And I, I don't know that. And it was, it was completely on me. There was, there were some frustrations I had with the way college in general is especially with the social environment but i was in a, a really deep hole um, because it was this feedback loop of do poorly on a test um get sad get be sad not want to study poor test result and it would just feedback 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 mm -hmm. endlessly um, and there were some courses i did fine in but all the ones that were engineering related i did terribly in and i just scraped through i switched majors to computer engineering 
hoping that that would stop this nosedive. Um, that was a completely lateral move that didn't do anything. <laughs> and so, um, and so at the end of it all, I was like, I, I, I got out of college. I'm like, I don't feel like I could work in this field. Not because like I couldn't get hired. I probably could. I just don't like, I wouldn't feel competent. I, I, I don't, I don't look, I can't look back on college and say that I've learned these three skills. And that, that is probably my biggest failure was not taking advantage of the opportunity. I had it easy. A lot of kids don't have it easy. My parents funded my way through college, you know, that like I, I, I took out loans and did a por- portion of it, but you know, that was, that was a gift that they gave to me and I kind of screwed that up. And so that, that's a, a huge regret on my life. Mm. But, um, but I think like without Sim TV, without all the stuff that spiraled off of that, it would be completely different. I, I have no idea where I would be, but I'm glad that the safety net caught me there. I'll tell you that. Yeah. So going on a two, three years out of college now, two years out of college, I guess. Looking back on, you were saying that you didn't know how to study, which is a very common thing that I've heard moving from high school to college or college to grad school or whatever it may be. What did you learn about that? Did Was it just kind of a simple motivation thing or was it I need to do these steps or I need to hear or see the information in this way? Um, what what have you learned? I, I think the, the, I, here's the, I, I can tell you what I learned by what I didn't do. Okay. And um, because I, I didn't fix it. Uh, right. I, I think if I went, if I went back to do more school, I, I still think I would, if I didn't actively attack um, the things I'm about to say, I, I wouldn't do any better. I'm pretty okay. confident in that. Um, and I didn't use in, in school when you're struggling, there are resources to help you. Um, there's office hours and there are, um, tutors that you can get. Uh, sometimes they're just students and they're just, there's a, you know, study groups and things where people get together and they kind of hive mind and, and figure stuff out, explain things in a different way. And I think a lot of, some of that stemmed from a social perspective of, um, I didn't fit in very well with the social crowd at, at that school. Okay. I'm not sure it was probably me also. Um, but I came from, you know, Rochester, New York, upstate New York is, it's not a small town vibe, but it's definitely not big city vibe. Right. And a lot of the students at Binghamton are kind of, um, Long Island, New York city, New Jersey, that kind of area that have a different, just a different life experience. And for whatever reason, I never really meshed with a lot of people there. I, I had a huge friends group in high school and almost nobody in college other than Finian. And there was like two other people I hung out with. Um, and so I didn't really have anybody to lean on uh, from a social perspective to even within my major to like lean on for help in any, any aspect. So I didn't have that, that first degree, which is friends. The second degree is, is tutors and office hours. And I took advantage of those things my first year because I was, I had all this motivation to crush it. Um, and I, you know, I was killing it. And so the, when I got to my sophomore year, I, I started doing less and less of that, um, thinking I didn't need to. And that's kind of where it started falling apart was things got harder and I didn't, I just kind of kept my strategy the same. So, and, and that's kind of where it fell. So even when you were doing poorly, why didn't you go seek that help back out? I think uh, I think there was significant. I, I think it falls back to the feedback loop I described earlier, where it was like 
I did really bad. Okay, I'm going to dig myself out of this. Um, and I'll just work a little harder next time. And then I wouldn't. And then I'd be like, man, that's that was 30% of your grade right there. That's that's how college is, right? Like you, you screw up your midterm. That's a that's a big deal. Yep. And so I wouldn't course correct quickly enough. So I'd, I'd score you know poorly on a midterm in a math class. And then it would be so I'd be distraught, right? Frustrated, disappointed in myself. Um, and, and it would just uh, that that kind of crushed my motivation. I didn't feel there was no feedback of success, right? So because I did poorly, I would have no motivation to study for the next one because I was depressed about the previous one. And you didn't um, and then, have a friend group around you to help right. kick you in the ass or pull and I, you and in I the right also direction. didn't have anybody to lean on emotionally either, right? Because I didn't have a big friends group, so no one really saw the the struggle that I had with this. So it just no one was able to reach in and pull me out. So that it just kind of kept kind of dropping down that that hole a little bit, um, and I just never really dug out of it. And I, I kind of joke, kind of lightheartedly with Finian sometimes that the pandemic I think probably uh, saved every every bit of the the career I have now. It can be directly attributed to the pandemic because school stopped, and that changed my focus from like SimTV as a side project to I can put all my energy into this. And there wasn't any negative energy associated with it, which there was with school. So that working on SimTV dug me out of these holes. I'd be in a hole all day. And then the highlight of my day was was broadcasting because I could forget about everything else. And I was good at the other thing. And so I just kept dumping time into that more and more and more and more. And combined with the fact that schools hadn't figured out how to really do remote learning yet Mm -hmm. at that time, um, the, the courses ended up you know, they had to kind of modify everything. It ended up being my best semester ever, not because I put any more effort in, because the bar lowered significantly. <laughs> um, and that probably uh, helped me get across the finish line and and then everything else during the pandemic spiraled from there. So there's, there's how productive and unproductive ways to panic, right? Like everybody has those moments in their lives where they're like, oh no, yeah, <laughs> that's bad. And and it sounds like in one part of your life you panic unproductively like in the, the school part you would panic yeah. in a way that was not productive and when you're doing stuff when you're when you're sim broadcasting and something happens you seem to panic in a very productive way like your real time panicking seems to be really productive whereas like the panicking where you have to plan for something doesn't seem to be which i i, I find interesting yeah, yeah and and i was noticing too that you know, in school, you said that, especially when you did poorly, that you wouldn't go seek out help or these study groups. But yet, when you're in a paddock with drivers you don't know, you'll go try to find them. Right. So that there, there's. So here's the thing, right? Is is the motorsports world I found to be really accepting um, in a way that I didn't know. Or I didn't experience in school, and I think part of it was, um, you know, the 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 feedback loop I mentioned earlier. And it's a, I think it's a chicken before in the egg thing of like how that starts, but once it's rolling, and you know, you're you're in this depression, and you can't find a, a social group to latch onto. But on the the sim racing side and the motorsport side, I had the community there, right? Uh, the sim racing world is a huge community. And they were friends, right? So every night I'd get on and I would have nobody at school I'd talk to, but I'd get on and have a group of 50 people every night that I'd be hanging out with. Um, and at the time, it felt like it was, I was distracting myself. And that was something that I had to like 
try to weigh as like, should I stop doing this? But it was the only thing that I could cling to where I like didn't dread doing it. And I think it was because of the community that surrounded it. And I think the, the same can be said about um, the real motorsports community is I look forward to it and I have a different motivation because there's there's people that bring me joy and I bring people joy in the things I hope in the things that I do. So you end up with a, a very positive loop of feedback there where there's people there and I'm executing a thing that they all like and it just continues to grow. Whereas this other side of the world, I like didn't have the, the people around me or didn't put the people around me to kind of lift me out of this hole. And I think it would be very different if I went back and um, and changed this, my social interactions and my social structure. I think the result of the schooling would probably be different. And it would probably affect the way that I study. We're learning right now that it would probably be sure. different um, just because of that and not so much the, the, the study strategy. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's it. I wouldn't have said like sim racing helped me grow up as a person, but you're <laughs> you're announcing Thanks, and your, your realizations about how you interact with the world through sim racing makes me kind of feel bad for like talking to my my sons about how they can play computer well, games. And, and but, admittedly, it's I'm not I'm not good at it now. Like at, at the race weekends, it's a different story. Um, I'm, I'm, I'll walk around happy. I'm, I'm pretty extrovert, uh, extroverted at the racetrack, but I'm, I've lived in Chicago now for working for grid life since fall of 2020. So we're coming up on uh, two and a half years. I have one friend here that like I actively go hang out with. So, and, and it's not like it, it bothers me on a daily basis. Like I have enough stuff to do to keep myself busy, but like my community is at the racetrack. Right. But I haven't yet solved the social <laughs> problem of people around me it's still something that I, I deal with all the time it's not something i think about actively but it's okay. it's something that at the end of the day you go like who's your friends group well yeah you know they're in ohio you know it's, it's different you know and i think the pandemic also didn't help because i moved here when no one could talk to you right. also but i never yeah, solved you, it after yeah either. you couldn't go out and meet people i think a lot of people are still learning to meet people because there was a uh, my I had two kids that graduated high school and, and entered college. So they're a couple of years behind you during the pandemic. And there was a whole bunch of coming of age things that they didn't do that. They're learning how to do at odd times in their life. So like underage um, drinking, uh, underage drinking is definitely one of them. Okay. Um, yeah. So, uh, but for instance, but, <laughs> but also just sort of like, let's call my friends and go do something. Like right. if you take two years of your life, Sure. between like 16 and 18 or or 17 and 19 and you you can't i mean you obviously you don't call anybody anymore but like you text somebody to go do something but that's not a possibility so you shape your whole life around other things you know like when you're 14 you don't know how to call somebody to go do something when you're 20 you know how to call somebody to do something and you sort of like learn that skill in that in that time like I'm going to find a way to hang out with people. Um, and that was taken away from people. A certain group of, of, of people during the pandemic. And I think yeah. they're still learning how to do that. And I'm trying to have a, I'm definitely have a lot of compassion for those people that, that had a different experience um, because of the pandemic and, and just how the world was structured during that time. Yeah, you know, you brought up an interesting point when you mentioned the drinking piece, um, because <laughs> you're you're welcome. I, 
<laughs> well, no, no, this isn't this isn't like a scar or anything on my life. I just it was one of the things I think actually contributed to me being so solitary was I never extraordinary when, when, alcoholism. No, no. <laughs> so it's actually the exact opposite of that. So when I grew up, um, I didn't have really any rules in our house. Like there was like just the don't don't disappoint mom and dad sort of thing, right? So I never had a curfew. I never had there was no rule about um, anything in particular. It was like please don't do these things. And I just didn't do them. I just listened to my parents and didn't come home after, you know, 11 p.m. And I didn't go out and drink. And when I got to college, for a lot of kids, that's like, there's no one watching over us. We can do whatever we want. And they and they go nuts. And there's a lot of social interaction that you mentioned happens at that time where you kind of learn to go out and do all those social things at bars, at parties, and all those things. I went to one frat party and I felt so horribly out of place that I like never, I never went back to another one. And it took me until my senior year to go to a bar again, ever. Um, and I, I didn't drink and I didn't until about two years ago still. I, I like, I don't, I don't really even keep alcohol in the house. Like the, the whole different thing, not any moral issue with it or anything. I just never did. So I never had those social experiences and cause I never felt comfortable in them. And it's weird because I'm a pretty extroverted person, like in the communities that I'm comfortable with, maybe I'm an introvert. But I don't know. But it's it's just I never had those the, that like social um, baptism, I guess we'll call it. Well, the the whole introverted extroverted thing is kind of a misnomer. It's it's largely like at the end of a day, you've had a long, tiring day from whatever it is. Do you call up or hang out with a bunch of friends, or would you rather just kind of stay in and recharge by yourself like reading a book playing a video game something like that like do you lean towards people when you are tired and exhausted or do you lean inward that's largely where it is yeah that's an interesting question actually because i don't know that i've had a, a social structure near me to do that physically in since high school um i can remember in high school i did that all the time and i would i would definitely lean on people a lot um, and then I think in college, when I had less people around me, I, I found solace in online communities, but it's not the same. Like you don't really get like hanging out in person is so much different than hanging out on the internet. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, th- I think if, if I had the, if I lived in the same town as all my friends still, I think I would do that. Yes. Okay. Um, but I, I don't, I'm comfortable being alone because if I, if I wasn't, I don't think I would have made it here in two and a half years. That's fair. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm fine being on my own. I think I'd rather have someone to chat with, though. Well, you have an adorable furry roommate, so. I do. He's locked up right now because I thought he'd be a menace, so. <laughs> All right. Real hard-hitting question. Are you ready? Sure. What is Tom O'Gorman's worst trait as a roommate? Oh, as a roommate, that's, that's, uh, you know, he was, he honestly is a pretty good roommate, uh, mostly because he was never there oh, <laughs> because okay. he travels so much. He, I mean, his impact on my life, first of all, enormous because Tom opened a whole lot of doors for me that he didn't have to do. Yes. Um, and when I moved to Chicago, I don't even really know his motivations for wanting to, to, to give that a go, but I'm grateful he did because I'm not sure that it would have been as easy to acclimate without someone that I was familiar with for sure. Um, but to answer the question, um, uh, I think again, this, this goes back to the question you, or the thing you just mentioned was, um, Tom is 
motivated by competition. And so if he was home, he was probably racing somebody or um, preparing for a race or in a mindset where he was focusing on something that wasn't our interactions. Mm -hmm. So I'd say, you know, if I could change one thing, I would go back and I want to have more conversations and more and hang out with him more. Sure. Um, I, I, I think we lived together for a year, but it felt like a week. Um, which was, I was like kind of bummed because like, I like hanging out with Tom, well, and but I think, uh, Tom, I, Tom's got a life, you know? Yeah. And he's mentioned, you know, that kind of time and like how far down the sim racing rabbit hole he went and like, you know, I, he, he can tell that part of the story, but he's, he's mentioned that that wasn't the, the best, no, the best thing for him either. No. And I think, you know, he, and I'm sure he's said this and I'm, I'm, you know, I think in the moment, I think I knew this, but he didn't really um, love his time in Chicago. I don't think he ever really fit in here. And I, I like, I'm liking it to my experience at college where like you show up expecting one thing and it just isn't what you expect. And so you, you have to change your, your, your background, right? You have to change where, where you are to really have a shot at finding something worth doing. And for Tom moving up, I, as far as I can tell, moving up to ASM for him was the best thing that he's ever done. Um, I think he needed that. I think he, he found his social group and it's awesome. Um, for me, I, I think I'm actually a little jealous that he's found his circle. Mm. Um, and, and I think that like, I'm, I'm happy he, that he did that. Um, so I, I think that was, you know, looking back, like I, I wanted, I wanted that for both of us. And sure. I'm just glad that he found, uh, some sunshine there. And I'm, I'm, again, it's not something I actively think about on a day-to-day basis, but like, yeah, I, I think that'd be, I, I, I'd like to have, I would get another room. Like I, if, if a roommate could tolerate the things that I do on a weeknight basis, <laughs> I'd be happy to have a roommate. I mean, Kyle's not wearing pants right now. So good luck, <laughs> you know, post that up well, on Craigslist. You might get some, uh, takers. It's just a, a fear for me. The biggest fear of doing this kind of thing in an apartment is being a, a nuisance to neighbors. Um, I'm not that loud, but it's sure. loud enough that like if you're in a poorly insulated building, you know, it'd be a problem. But both <laughs> places I've lived have been pretty solid structures. This one's got concrete floors, oh, so nice. nobody can hear. Yeah, I imagine your sounds like your neighbors listening to NASCAR every <laughs> yeah. single night. Oh my god! <laughs> well, and you know, especially you got to match that energy. So right. something starts <laughs> happening like. That that voice volume's gonna come up, and it, it's funny because there was a couple times in our in the apartment that I had with Tom where the the neighbors, I I they never complained, but I could hear them on some occasions. So I knew that they could hear us; they just weren't complaining. Yeah. And so it would change the way that I announced, and I didn't like that because I could go back and listen and and tell that I was like pulling down that that scream, you know. <laughs> 15 percent so that it wouldn't bother them yeah and that matters because you can hear it and it just doesn't doesn't sound right no that's fair enough so you're full-time at good life still doing stuff with sro what's what are you striving for now like you know you you've mentioned that you keep working on graphics you keep like wanting to hone your craft and things like this. What's, I don't want to say bucket list necessarily, but like what are the things that you're eager to try or that you're eager to do? I, I still think on the, there, there's kind of two different things I have a part in at Grid Life on the broadcast side. And one is the, the graphics and one is the announcing. On grid on the Grid Life side, I'd, I'd, much, I'd much rather announce and 
and hone that craft there um, because it's my it's my buddies, it's my homies, and everyone I really enjoy talking to and talking about, and I'm passionate about everybody that's out there. On the SRO side, um, while I announce there currently on the on the public address on occasion whenever I can make it, the thing I do at Gridlife I want to do for them because I, I have a huge passion for the graphic side of motorsport presentation, and I would love to design graphics packages for NBCSN and Fox Sports and all, and all those things. But as, as far as bucket list things go, like the announcing piece is probably the easier thing to get into because all that other stuff is really handled by designers, like real designers. Sure. Um, and I think if I see where my career is going, it's probably going to be in the announcing side. And the Spa 24, uh, Le Mans, mm-hmm. Daytona 24, all, all the big, the big international sports car races, you know, um, I, I don't have as much of a connection to IndyCar or the Indy 500 as some other people I know. It would certainly it's certainly a bucket list thing, but it's not the thing that I dream about. I think flying internationally for a sports car race and going and sitting on the side of Eau Rouge and commentating GT3 cars would be that would be the, the top for me. And the crazy thing is I'm like not that many degrees removed from it. No, because uh, every every year SRO takes three or two, three to five of their personnel to go to that race. And the last couple of years, Ryan Marine is gone and he's been on their broadcasts and, and done that. And um, they're in a position now, they have another person that another one of me that is better than me that they, they have when I can't be around. Um, and so they have him now, but previously anytime that like Ryan or their pit reporter or Calvin had to miss something, they would pull me up. So I was only one degree away from stepping into that role. Yep. And now they got a guy for that. Um, and that, that can be there for all their rounds. And he's my age and has a very, very similar background. But yeah, I, I, inter, international sports car racing for me, that that's that's the the top of the peak. That would be cool. From a, Just as an aside, you mentioned the, the graphics. And mm-hmm. it, it seems to me that it's the, the graphics on the sim racing side can advance faster than the graphics on the the um i don't say real racing but the the flesh and blood racing side because your access to data is so much greater than it is on the other side and at one point it seems like you would want to you know years ago you would want to simulate racing with sim stuff and it it feels to me like that's flipping now like now if you could get if you could get racing to feel like like sim, like if you switched them back and forth, you would actually have a big advantage. Yeah, so that's an interesting point because you know you mentioned the data side, and the the biggest thing that helped me advance my sim racing broadcast graphics was the fact that all the back end, all the connections between what's happening on track and what goes into the ticker is all handled for you, and all you have to do is tell it where I want that data point to be what font I want that data point to be, how big it is, what it does animation-wise. I just have to tell it what to do, and it'll do it. And I can I can build the graphics around it, and I'm just basically putting in a blank data point for that to fill. So you can totally, and you're totally right, it, it happens so much faster because we have access to constantly updating car speeds, positions, um, you know, class positions, lap times, sector times, the percent they've completed a lap, like all that stuff is instantly accessible. In the real world, you're limited by so much stuff. Uh, cell phone reception, internet, 
um, how often you have timing and scoring update, which for us is once a lap. So car crosses a line. You don't know where it is until it crosses the line again. So we don't have GPS, at least at the grid life level, at the top level they do, but um, it's incredibly expensive for those those pieces of equipment. Yep. So you're limited by what you can do. Um, so what you end up, and, and a lot of this, there's stuff that does that, but in real time to match it with the video fee that you're getting, that's a whole other other thing. Um, but the graphics, yeah, I mean, that's your, the data is the, the biggest piece and the iRacing, sim racing stuff, the hard stuff is handled for you and that makes it so much easier. And I don't have to, like, I don't have to know how to code, right? Like, again, I went to school for engineering. Um, I should, this is something I should have learned better than I did. Um, but, but the, uh, you know, on the real world side, you need to know how to do that. You need to capture the timing and, and parse all the information and figure out, because it just gives you uh, a, a data stream and you have to format that. And, and that's something I don't do and I don't know how to do. So that's something that our broadcast team which is many more people than myself handles. You talk to the engineers so the customers don't have to. Exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Um you got on track for the first time a uh, couple years ago now, like driving. Yes. How'd that go? Better than I thought it was going to go. I'm going to be honest. Okay. Um so this is this would have been 2020, so I just started I don't think I had yet started working for Gridlife yet. Um, I hadn't even gotten the job offer yet. Um, I had been in the paddock for a while. I'd been showing up doing the streams. I just wasn't officially working. And Ben Harisco, uh, who from Ultima Raceworks, offered me uh, his little spec Miata to drive at Road America in HPDE mm -hmm. if I wanted to. And I thought that was the dumbest idea ever because I had never been on a racetrack um, at speed. I didn't even know how to drive stick in person, like in a real car. I had done it in the sim and I had like know the muscle memory of the clutch and the, and the downshifting and all that. Like I knew how to do it, but I had never done it. And there's a very big difference between those two things. Yes. And I thought about it for a while and I talked to my parents about it because I was still living at home at the time. And they're like, well, what happens if you crash this car? I'm like, oh, I really hope I don't do that. First of all, uh, second of all, like I, you know, I, I think I could probably deal with that scenario when it came around. I, you know, I, I, Sim TV had a real good year in 2020. I probably could have been all right um, with some insurance or something of the sort. Didn't buy track insurance, should have. Um, but I showed up and I did the beginner program and I got in this car. And I guess I, I kind of lied. I'd driven stick a couple times on the street, but not on a racetrack. I never had to try a heel toe downshift or anything. So I like rolling down pit lane. I like stalled the car a couple times, just getting onto grid, yep. um, which was embarrassing, but you know, you're learning. And I remember sitting in this car and it's, it's a spec Miata. It's kind of a junky looking one, but it's, a, it's a race car. Oh, I'm roll bars. I'm very familiar with that. Yeah, car. <laughs> it, I think there's a lot of people because it's run GLTC. So it's, it's seen track time. I've been inches away from that car for yeah. several turns. <laughs> yeah. But my my thought was this is my first time on a racetrack and this is a this is a freaking real race car like it's got a roll cage I'm I'm like wearing a it's helmet loud. and yeah. I, it's loud I've got a digital dash that like looked exactly like the one in the iRacing car and like it was this and I joked because uh, I like yelled across the paddock at Ed um, that like it's a real race car but he thought I said it's a red one because it was red and he thought that was the funniest <laughs> thing um but anyway i got out on the racetrack and I, I roll out of the pits i tried really hard not to speed on pit lane because i didn't want to be an idiot road, and get called back road america this is at road america by yep, the way they're strict um yeah very very strict uh at road america 
very daunting racetrack to drive on the first for the first time. Gingerman would have been a lot better choice. I was going to mention that's a very serious track to to roll out on your first time. There's a lot of walls yeah. in your vision. Well, the yeah. good part is the walls are really far away from the center of the track because the track's so wide. <laughs> it <laughs> is a big. Track. Lots of places so, to go. So I, I roll out of pit lane, and, and the other thing, I mean, this is this is the very first beginner session of the weekend. It's raining, mm-hmm. and I'm on God knows how old tires on yep. that car. Okay. Like they were not new. No. And I roll out behind uh, Kevin seventy ones. Yeah, they were they were real old RE seventy ones. But I rolled out behind Kevin Went, who was in his Subaru. He was one of our he's our timing guy, and it, he was uh, also doing the beginner program. And we went off into turn three, and I had not tried a downshift yet or anything. And Kevin almost spun out on the corner exit, and like he he almost like he was fifty degrees sideways and managed to hang on to it. And I was like, oh, this is this is I might have been off more than I could choose. So you know we're we're slowly accelerating, kind of doing the you know the the lead follow down you know 50 60 miles an hour into turn five and i go all right let's try this downshift thing so foot on the brake uh left foot on the clutch and then rotate over hit hit the throttle and and put it into gear and it just did it and it made all the right sounds and i went oh my god i can't believe that i actually did that i'd never tried it before and the only experience i had was on the simulator and i just knew that the, the the memory of what my feet should be doing what my hands should be doing and it just worked yeah it's just it wasn't, muscle memory. Yeah, and and there was a couple times in the sessions that I like I screwed him up a little bit and it was a little messy, but like I never missed a gear. Um so that was cool. And and the rest of the weekend I just I never got fast. It wasn't wasn't going fast. But I didn't wreck the car. I had a really good time. I got got up on some curbs and rattled the cage a little bit. And I had there was a couple experiences at Road America. One stuck out stuck out to me in turn 3 on one of my laps at the end of the weekend. I went in and I locked the brakes up and it was still wet. And I remember feeling the the left front tire lock. And I remember not thinking about it. And then it wasn't locked anymore. And I just remember that like the only way that I, I could have known what to do instead of panicking was to just gently lift off and let the wheel start rolling again. Um, and it was probably doing 75 miles an hour. Like it wasn't going slow for this, this car. And I, I just remember feeling very much like iRacing. Like when I felt that tire lock, I like knew inherently what to do and mm-hmm. not panic brake and skid off the track. Uh, so that was a really cool moment. And then I think I did like probably 105 off into turn five. I'm, like, I'm going pretty quick in this little car. And it was it was a cool experience. And uh, I just I remember that being very positive. Nice. Not not fast, but, but positive. Yeah. Still a Miata. Still a Miata. Slow Miata. And, and and it led into some, you know, I, I did another uh, event later in, at Gingerman and spun the car out on pit exit and did some other dumb stuff. I, I got too confident. It was in my brain. I wasn't going to bring it up. I'm, I'm going to bring it up. I spun out in first gear because I was like, first gear, Miata, can't be that sketchy. Nope, it was sketchy. <laughs> that car dynoed at 82 horsepower that later that week. Yeah, that. So, uh, well, that that left turn from pit out is, I mean, it's, it's present and it's there. <laughs> You can spin a Miata there, I know. As it turns out. So, yep. Well, you enjoyed it enough that you got kind of a fun car yourself. Yeah. Got a FRS, right? Yeah. So um, that was my dream car in high school. Uh, when it came out, it was, I was, what year was I in high school? 2012, 14. So I was a freshman. Yep. Um, and that car came out in Japan in hot lava orange. And I thought it was the coolest thing. And I was like, that car is not. It, it, like I looked at the the price of my dad's car, new, 
was the same price as that car. And like, we didn't, we don't, we didn't buy fancy cars. So like, yeah, someday I could have a car like that. And, uh, you know, the next couple of years in high school, I was like, kept looking at prices. I couldn't afford a car. I was just looking to see like, oh, you know, 12 grand. No, that one's got a hundred thousand miles. That might be good. So, you know, roll around to, uh, this would have been 20, 2021 in January, we were going to Willow Springs and I was talking to Chris about wanting this FRS and I was driving him crazy. Cause he's like, just buy the car. Like you work at a place now, just buy the car. <laughs> and so I was like, you know what? Maybe I should just buy the car. And so I, I kept thinking about it. Like, can I take on this responsibility of paying this, you know, this monthly payment? And I did all the math and I realized, you know, I, I went and saw what I could get for loans and I had to search for about a month until I could find one that was close enough that had the right mileage and the right price. Um, and I just found it in a suburb and bought it and that was it. And I just had my dream car and I, I still love that car so, so much tracked it a couple times. Um, I just, I, I suspension brakes, tires, all it's got some interior stuff, but it, it fits the vision of what I wanted. And I, I, I don't have any desire for anything else. It's just a simple car and I like it. That's you, do you still park it in a parking lot and like look back at it when oh, you walk away every, every day, every <laughs> yeah. day. I mean, it's, I have an album on my phone with thousands of photos of the there same angle of me walking away from it in the parking do, lot. Do you want to see so my, stupid. do you want to see but, my child? It's, it's orange right. and has cool well, wheels. It, it's just silly. Cause a lot of people like in the track community will, yeah, it's an FRS. Like there's millions of them, but like for me, and, but, again, this growing up, but this one's mine, but growing up in a, in a household that like didn't really value, you know, cars or equipment, they're not, you know, for fun. Um, so for me, it was to like be able to appreciate something like that. And it's, it's the car, it's the car I would have put on my wall. It wasn't a Lamborghini. It wasn't a Ferrari. It was this Scion FRS and it's a simple pleasure. I don't, I mean, there's cars I, I would take if someone gave them to me, but like (laughs) if I could buy a car tomorrow, it'd be a GR86, you know, like that. I I just subscribe to the platform and, and they've got me. So yeah, we have um, one of our good friends in the one lap of America. They took a pretty stock GR86, right, Seth? It was yeah, I think stock everything except for tires. I think that was it, uh, which was the um, Toyota of not of. Oh yeah, not they talk about the the new one. Yeah. Yeah, the new one, and that thing did. I mean, granted, he's quite an accomplished driver but like that car was very good right all out of the box. the neat thing was all of the toyota engineers that we talked to about that car you know engineers are pretty jaded about they're like yeah i mean new car it's okay like all of them were like this is it that's cool like this car is that good so that was, was pretty telling um yeah, they're neat cars. I'm I'm slightly jealous. I've been in a couple. I've driven a couple. I haven't ever convinced myself I wanted to buy one. But when I see them in parking lots, I do what you did. I sort of like, I side eye them. I'm like, there, there's there's better cars cool for sure. There's definitely faster cars. Like um, yeah, but but like for me, it was never like I again going back to like I'm not super competitive. Like I always thought it was a little silly. So you're like, well, my car's faster than yours. Because, like, no, it's not. There's someone else that's down the street that's going to have a faster car than yours tomorrow because Dodge is going to come out with some 1,000-horsepower <laughs> demon kitty, whatever they're going to call it. And it's going to roast yours. At, like, the, the the pursuit of straight-line speed, is, for me, is kind of a tired pursuit, right? Like, I, I don't I don't see value in doing Mach 3 in a straight line. Um, and honestly, like, it for me, 
putting a smile on my face is all that I ever really wanted a car to do. And it's, it's fine. Like it gets up onto the highway and it does 65, you know, it it might even do a hundred if you give it a mile, you know, like, so that's, that's plenty. And I can rev that I can go all the way to the top of, of third gear. Okay. Maybe second before you're in trouble (laughs) and a Camaro in first gear, you're doing, you know, you're already breaking the speed limit in most places. And at the top of second, you got a felony, you know, like you can't enjoy it on a racetrack. It's different, but. I had a Cadillac station wagon that was the the same way, and I drove that around for about four years. God, you make it and sound like a hearse. He drove a CTSV wagon. <laughs> yeah, I had a okay. CTSV. I had a CTSV wagon, a manual CTSV wagon, and you're right. At like the top of second, the car you could shift it into third, and it would spin the rear tires, and yeah. you were breaking all the speed limits. And right. I was like, where, like, where do you go from here? Right. Um, Soccer like nothing practice. else makes. Really to soccer, literally took it to soccer practice a bunch but yeah and, and like you say like that chasing the thing like i'm gonna it's gonna be better it's gonna be better and then you show up you know go to a track weekend at coda and there's a guy there with a with a mclaren senna gtr right and he's right. just like doing track stuff in his in whatever a senna gtr costs a million two or something and you're like yeah you can't really play that game Right. When you start to know people who are really into it, you just have to find your happy spot. Yeah. And and for me, like looking at like from an objective perspective, like of the sports cars that are accessible to people at reasonable prices, Miata's always there. But Miata's are not really great dailies for people that have to travel a lot because the trunk might as well not exist. (laughs) Um, there are, you know, there's cars that kind of straddle the the mid range to lower range, but like really at the time that that car came out, it was the only one really that, uh, offered, you know, it was low slung, got good gas mileage, um, was fun to drive and it had a usable interior space. So it just kind of fell in and like, I I just saw so much value in being pretty good. You know, this is funny that we're coming back to this pretty good at a lot of different things and not really good at any of them, but just really good at a you know being a, a normal car a sports car you know you 70, can you can road trip the heck out of it 70 so percent reminds of 100 percent it so much reminds yeah. me of the of the first gen rx7 in that way mm-hmm. in which like it was a remarkably practical car that was simultaneously horribly impractical and like that's how i think of the brz is, yeah. is it's like you can it does both of those things it's like it's a small sports car but it's pretty good at being a car to drive right but right. yeah and, and it's uh yeah they're neat cars i think which, you did good with that which That's is a good dream car which is kind of fun because both have problematic engines yes that so also <laughs> was on in my on my mind yeah just gonna yeah say so it. that that was the thing like when i wanted to get one everyone's like, don't buy those things man they're, they're just gonna blow up you're gonna be a whole you're gonna be out of money blah 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 and I'm like I know, but I was also one of those people that like, if I'm going to buy something and, and like really buy something, I'm going to research the heck out of it. Oh, yeah. And so I, I went in knowing everything that could, I, st- I still, I think, know everything that could go wrong with the car. And there's, there's two things that really can go wrong in the engines. And um, one of them is the valve springs, which was, um, it wasn't the valve springs themselves. They had a recall for the valve springs. But it was the recall work that was done that caused so many of those engines to blow. And so my car never had the service done. And only like two cars in history that um, actually had valve springs fail. And that that recall was across the entire Subaru lineup, mm. not just the twins. Sure. So it was the service that blew the, a lot of those cars up. 
Um, so you don't get the service done, you're, you're safe from that. <laughs> the other thing is rod bearing failure from oiling problems, which is generally what the track people run into, which Subaru for me, things at that point. Yeah, it, it's a Subaru thing, right? But for me, I don't really track the car heavily any, anymore. I, I, did, I didn't even track it heavily when I, when I did track it. Um, but uh, oil coolers run a thicker oil weight, watch the temps, you'll be all right. People put 250,000 miles on them. You know, that's probably a little rarer than hearing track day guys blow them up, but I know what can go wrong and I, I accept that risk, but it's definitely a shortcoming. If it came with the Toyota engine, it'd be a much better car, but also I, I subscribe to their ideology of low center of gravity and all those other things. So I'm cool with it. That's fair. What are you excited about this season as we're uh, rapidly so approaching? Um, give me your, cause I'll just announced another uh, event at Barber for the time attack folk. Um, yeah, but we're going to a, several new tracks. Um, things changed event wise. I don't want to say dramatically, but pretty substantially. What are you What are you personally looking forward to? So for me, the the obvious answer is Watkins Glen is on our calendar, and mm -hmm. that was the the portal to my motorsports world was through that track. So to go back, I've been there working for SRO uh, since. So that was kind of cool. But to bring grid life, which is my family, back to my home track is really, really special. And I cannot wait. I'm also really excited that it's being broadcast because um, I, to share that moment of returning to where this all started for me is, is going to be a really big deal. We're going to have Greg Kramer at that one, too. So um, from a broadcast perspective and from my excitement, that's top of the list. Um Lime Rock returning. Everyone loved that event last year. I know you missed it last year, unfortunately, but one of the best facilities in the country. Um, that was my favorite event of all time I've ever done was Lime Rock last year. Okay. So can't wait to go back there. Uh, Laguna Seca. I'm not actually as excited about that one as I think everyone else is. And I don't know why I just never really put like Laguna on the same, like the corkscrew's cool. You know, that's awesome. But like the rest of it, you know, I'm looking forward to it. It'll be fun, but um, not top of the list. I'd say the other thing um, from the event side is the Road America uh, companion date that we've got with um, NASCAR. Mm -hmm. So that'll be GLTC and a, a select group of track battle cars. And that is going to be the best marketing exercise we've ever done. That'll be 50,000 people that are required to watch our race because we're going to do it right before everybody else. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that's going to be nerve wracking for Adam, I'm sure. But uh, I can't wait for that. Um, and then you mentioned this, the restructure of the events. And that was kind of, you know, I'm not sure how much Chris and Adam have really touched on this, but the goal, the, the problem we ran into was every event we did, we do 12 events, 14 events a year, and they were all kind of the same level of effort and all had the same, you know, 30 person group that would have to be hired on. And we'd have this, this whole run up to the events and they're all kind of similar workload. Um, but we were only able to broadcast a handful of them because the broadcasts are so expensive. So we ended up having these banger events that no one could see. And in the GLTC side specifically, that kind of ran us into the problem of, well, we have this championship that's happening and then four races happen before the next one we stream. And so there's no continuity there uh, from the broadcast side. So what if we took the events that everyone goes to already, the ones that naturally have scaled and we make those the broadcast events. And then the other events, the ones that are kind of the local crowds go to, um, we'll make those kind of more driver focused, more track time, um, and kind of bring that back to like what grid life was in 2015, right? 
before the complications of everything and have two separate experiences where if you wanted a little bit more simplistic, um, you didn't want all the distractions of a broadcast weekend, the club weekends are perfect for you. Um, the broadcast side is for those that have kind of, we've naturally amassed this community of really competitive people that really care about um, the competitions that they're running. They really want to have the exposure of the broadcast. There's people that are building sponsorship decks around the broadcast. And so you, you can really kind of choose your own path or, or mix and match whatever kind of fits your your strategy the best. And so I think it gives people more flexibility with what they want to get out of grid life without kind of leaving people in this middle ground of like, you know, determining what event is big and what event is not. So I, I think it, generally it'll be a change and the, the track battle format, especially since I had a huge hand in that, I'm terrified for because I really want people to enjoy that. And I, that's going to be a, a big, big deal is if people hate it, I'm going to feel responsible for it. So I'm a little bit nervous about that. People, people hate change until they can get their eyes on it, their hands on it and get to experience it. So up until then, people just love to pick out all the flaws of anything. Yeah. And there are, and there, there are, are some flaws, right? Like we intended to make a big change last year in 2022 and it never really materialized. Um, and so there was one day in, uh, I guess it was probably October or August. And I was like, I, we just need to do this. And so I just kind of wrote a draft of like what I thought would be cool and bounced it off Adam a couple of times. And we, we, you kind of, it, it modeled itself a little differently as the months went on, but I'm pretty happy with where we're at. It's going to complicate some things for sure. And that's, that's why I think the club weekends being track time focused is, is good. So people can, people that are really focused on getting the bang for the buck still have an, an avenue. Sure. Um, but it, it's complicated, yes, but I think the result is going to be the drivers and the spectators are all going to have a better time in the moment, which I think is going to be important. So we'll see. Well, what um, what things do you need to plug, say hi to, and uh, thank? Ah, man, I think I got to I think I got to thank DJ Alessandrini. I don't know sure sure if he's listening, but uh, DJ was. We didn't really talk about this. I've talked about this on other podcasts a lot, so I didn't want to dive too deep. But how I went from SimTV into GridLife directly um, was through the SCCA, which GridLife, or sorry, with DJ was participating in their esports stuff. And he was also participating in GridLife's esports stuff. And DJ was the link. So gotcha. he's the one that introduced me to everybody else. And so I owe him a, a huge, huge thank you uh, for, for getting me here on this special five-year anniversary of SimTV. Um, Tom, for uh, you know, I'm redoing my graphics on the SimTV side. Tom actually helped design those. I'm not sure he's probably never told anybody that, oh, but nice. he was had a hand in developing those. Um, and my parents, obviously, they they were a safety net, and we, we we dove into the college thing, which I've never talked about before, ever. By the way, that was fun. Um, so uh, my parents were a huge safety net through that entire period, and were very very supportive uh, through some pretty tough, like emotional times for me. But I think. We all realize that if we could just get out of that hole and find another, you know, something else to focus on, we'd be in a good good spot. And they allowed me to take this jump into this motorsports world, which like isn't a job. <laughs> and and and, uh, and they could have said like we really really don't think we think you shouldn't do this. We sh you should continue doing this or, or try something else. Um, but they didn't do that. They they let me do this, and they had the option to not. Or to, or to at least advise me not to do this. That's hard as and, a parent to let to yeah. let a kid try something knowing that they could very well fail. 
especially because they didn't even let me have a like a console. Like I never had a PlayStation growing up because it was like screen time, right? Yeah. Um, and so I never had that. And so you know, to to say, oh, my son is not loving his career, but he wants to broadcast esports and talk about race cars. Like that was a, a hilarious thing to let me do, but they did, and here we are. So yeah. big thanks to them, and thanks to you guys. I know you guys are. Um, you guys delve into some topics on this podcast that I don't think other podcasts do. And a lot of it, the time it's um, you know, the emotional side, the social side of of people, which I think is interesting. And I'm glad that I kind of got to chat about that a little bit today. Um, it's, it's just, it's an interesting thing. I've never talked a lot. Of, I talk a lot about a lot of different things, but very rarely about stuff like that. And so it was, it was pretty refreshing. Well, thanks for being willing to talk about it that's kind of the uh <laughs> the necessary first step of getting to <laughs> any of it so thank you and thank you we know that you've got a uh a broadcast actually that you've got to go uh go and get ready for so thank you kyle really appreciate it uh we are at track walking podcast on all your socials track walking chat is the facebook group and uh we'll be back next week with uh more stuff for the three of us I'm Scott. And I'm Seth. And I'm Kyle. Have a good night. We'll talk to you next week.